Good morning. Recently, I was listening to a program about predators, and they were pointing out that some assailants are very crafty in the way they operate. They uh, gave an example that a would-be attacker might drive past a woman on the sidewalk and just stop and ask for directions. And then when the woman would move closer, approach the car to talk with them, pull out a gun and demand that she get in the car. And the advice given was not to get in the car, but to immediately stop and run the other direction and your chances of survival are much better. And the program talked about how church is an ideal place for predators. Because at a church gathering, the default mindset is to trust everybody. We let our guards down, that everybody there has their best intention, and the predator knows this. So churches have to be vigilant. So we do background checks on those who volunteer and serve with our children. But parents still need to be alert, not just at church, but school activities, sports, and other activities, because These predators are very manipulative, and they know how to work on parents as well as children. I remember a few years ago, a man knocked on the door here at church when a group was meeting uh, what is now the teen center kitchen. They were having a meal, just a small group, and um, he was kind of in a difficult spot. So they invited him to come in and eat a warm meal with them, and he did. He enjoyed the meal, sat with them, and talked, and was going back for seconds, but instead of going back for seconds, he went into the kitchen where some of the ladies had placed their purses, and he helped themselves to all the contents of their purses and walked out. No one suspected that at all. One officer teaching the seminar pointed out it's really important for not just women, but really for all of us to know, to be aware that this knowledge can be life-saving. And with that in mind, I want to start a series today for the month of November called Behind Enemy Lines and talk about his crafty manipulation today. You can pull out your bulletin. There's an outline there. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. That's going to be our main text for our study. I appreciate uh, Rachel Bassham uh, and our staff. She helped me with this creative graphic. Tonight, our small groups are going to meet, and we're going to talk more about how he works Uh, and especially his manipulation. You know, the Bible warns us that we face a spiritual adversary who is determined to destroy us, and he is out to get us. He is out to take us down. And in the Bible, there are a variety of names that he has given or referred to. He's called Satan. He's called the devil. He's referred to as the adversary. Uh, At times, he's called Beelzebub. He's called the prince of darkness. He's called the accuser. He's called the dragon put a couple of verses on the screen. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief, Jesus calls him, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, be obedient in everything in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Peter warned us, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's just a small snippet of verses that kind of paint the picture of who the enemy is. And since it's a matter of life and death, I think we need to be familiar with Satan's strategies, with his devious schemes, the way he works, so that we can be equipped to counter his assaults. 
So Genesis 3 is going to be our text. Verse 1, Satan wastes no time trying to botch God's wonderful creation and his relationship with man and woman. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast on the field that the Lord God had made. So follow along with me this morning and fill in the blanks. Notice first, Satan is crafty in that he appears unexpectedly. He appears unexpectedly. Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden seemingly out of nowhere. There's no background information given about him. We don't read anything here in this passage. In fact, if you are reading this for the first time, all sorts of questions come to mind. Who is he? Where did he come from? How does he do this? What's his purpose? What's his motive? And the Bible, frankly, doesn't give us a great deal of information about the origin of Satan. We kind of have to put some pieces together to try to make sense of where he came from. Maybe the best verse that gives us a glimpse is Revelation 12. Put it on the screen, beginning in verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient servant who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, Again, with that, because of where it is, the context, the book of Revelation, there's a, uh, not a lot of agreement even among biblical scholars of exactly when this occurred. But evidently, Satan is the archangel, became prideful, and led this rebellion against the others, and he was thrown down to earth. And ever since then, he's been at war with God. He is our enemy and he's trying to take us down no matter what. And for Genesis 3 on, what we see here is this spiritual warfare going on. Last week, as we were finishing up the book of Ephesians, we looked at chapter 6, verse 12. We're warned, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Satan is going to do everything he can to frustrate God and to take us down. And he knows he cannot win. He knows that. But that's not going to stop him from creating mayhem everywhere, every chance he gets. One author recounted that when Saddam Hussein knew he had lost the war in the Gulf War, when they were leaving, he commanded his armies, and they lit fire to every oil well they could as they left, out of spite, out of meanness, out of bitterness. Satan knows his time is short, but he's determined to do the same thing, to take as many people down as he can. I'm intrigued by the book of Genesis. To me, it leaves me with more questions than answers, as I've studied through it many times. Why? Did he choose to enter the serpent here? Now, Satan is a fallen angel. He's a spirit being. In his natural form, he cannot be seen by human eyes. At least that's what we understand from Scripture. But Satan is crafty. He does have the capacity to possess a physical being. See that a number of times, even in Jesus' day. Remember Mark 5 where Jesus uh, encountered a man who was possessed by a legion of demons? Jesus cast the demons out. 
Do you remember what they said? Look at verse 13. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. See, if in Genesis, Satan entered the serpent so he could be seen and heard by Eve. And then afterwards, you know the stories, God pronounced a curse on the serpent. Evidently, the serpent was one of the highest elevated beings of the creation. Satan used it to appear to Eve. And remember how he suddenly appeared to Jesus. Kind of the same style. Just He just kind of appeared in Genesis 3. Kind of the same thing with Jesus. No sooner had Jesus been born, Herod gets word, and an assassination plot unfolds. Trying to take him down. Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt just to escape that. Satan attacked Jesus as a time of physical vulnerability. He's a baby. He's an infant. He can't yet even defend himself. So they had to leave the country. A lot of lessons there. When we're weak, when we're discouraged, when we're tired, when we're depressed, when we're spiritually empty, he's going to come after us as well and take advantage And then I think about when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry. Satan showed up then. You remember that story? The Holy Spirit just descended. God's voice boomed. This is my beloved son. That word of affirmation, whom I love. That word of love, this confirmation. Jesus then had that 40 days of fasting, this spiritual communion with God, this connection time. Glorious beginning. Everything was going so well. But then we read in chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Satan attacked Jesus just after what you might call that spiritual high, hearing God speak. The Spirit there in the form of a dove. This moment of communion with God. These 40 days of focusing just on his relationship And Satan seems to appear out of nowhere. Maybe you get baptized. You finally make the decision. You're going to live with the Lord, and you feel so good about your decision, and then you find yourself in a situation where somebody pushes your button, and words come out of your mouth that is not of God. It's that old man who sometimes comes back alive. Or maybe you decide to maybe increase your giving. You want to do more for the Lord. You're determined to make it work. And just then, an unexpected expense comes. And you're wondering, what am I going to do now? Or maybe a temptation to spend money elsewhere. I've always been intrigued at how Satan appeared at the Last Supper. Have you thought about that? That very special moment when Jesus is in his last days, really last hours with the 12, it's it's like it's the moment. It's like this special moment. It's so special with them. Jesus took the bread, broke it. I'll put it on the screen, Luke 22, verse 19. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Couldn't be a more sacred moment between this one and his 12. But then verse 21, but behold, Jesus said, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. Even in that moment, 
In fact, Luke's gospel, verse 3, earlier says Satan had entered Jesus. We're going to dig into that more in our small groups tonight. What does that mean? How did that happen? You wouldn't expect Satan to be lurking in the upper room. Why? He was not invited. He was not supposed to be there. But his goal is to destroy. His goal is just to take God down in every way he can, or at least his people. And we need to know that he shows up at church even today. You're here. You want to focus on God. You made the effort to come. It is all sorts of ways to distract you. There's a song you don't like, or somebody's wearing something that catches your attention. You're thinking about so much you've got to do. The weekend's almost over. Monday's coming. All sorts of things where our brain, we can't even focus for a few moments on this sacred meal. Satan is so good. He shows up. See, he's crafty because we expect him to be in dark places, you know? We expect him to be in the occult, in the drug culture, adult bookstores, all, all kinds of places of evil. But Satan, as the Bible says, masquerades himself as an angel of light. He truly is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Parents don't think sending your child to a Christian school is going to isolate them from the evil one. Same thing. Shows up at church, he goes to a Christian school. In fact, even there, your guards let down a bit, and Satan can wreak havoc. It can happen to any of us. It can happen at any time. You do an innocent search on the Internet, and something unwholesome pops up. You didn't ask for it. You weren't looking for it. And there it is. And you kind of ask yourself, what is Satan doing in my computer? What is Satan doing on my phone? Oh, he is there. He is so crafty. That's why the Bible warns us, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Never let your guard down. Never. Because he comes unexpectedly. Well, number two, Satan is also crafty because he appeals seductively. He is so smooth in the way he talks, in the way he thinks, in the way he presents things. Now, if you've studied Genesis before, you're familiar with Satan's ways here and, and how he manipulates things that puts a question mark where God put a period. He began simply first by questioning God's word. Has God said you're not to eat of that tree? Just asking. He just asks a question. And he's a master at scoffing. He's a master at sneering at God's word. And he still asks questions today. Did God really say that sex is, is only supposed to be in marriage? Even today? Really? Is that still true? Has God said you should refrain from working and truly rest one day a week? Has God said that you should give away 10% of your money? Did he say that? Does that apply to you? Has God said the husband is the head of the home today in our culture? Look at their conversation, chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 1 and following. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. You get a sense here that Eve was sort of overstating the, restric the restriction because the text doesn't say anything about not touching the tree. Although 
probably a good practice. You're not supposed to eat it. Don't even touch it. But Satan's question had to raise some doubts in her mind. So he questions the word, and then he denies God's word. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's not true, he says. Don't be so naive. So he questions God's word, then he denies God's word, and then he reverses God's word. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying God's holding you back. God's keeping you from enjoying the real life, the good life. He's keeping you hostage. He's limiting you. Don't you see that? He reverses God's word, and he still whispers today. Sex and marriage is good. That's not the only way. You must work 10 hours a day, seven days a week, if you're ever going to get ahead in your job. That 10% thing, that's Old Testament. You don't have to live by that. You need to live a little. Enjoy yourself. You deserve it. Eve found Satan's appeals very tempting. He appealed to her physical senses. It looked good for food. He appealed to her intellectual pride. It would make her wise. He appealed to her emotional needs. She'd become more important. She'd be like God. And it worked. Everything within her was craving what was forbidden. It's what she wanted. Satan had her in his sneaky grasp, and she ate it. And then she gave it to her husband, and he ate it. Satan specializes in making sin look attractive, look good. It happens all the time. I read about two ministers that were driving past a a very attractive estate, and both of them, without saying a word, were just taking it all in. I mean, this, you know, several acres, and there was a kind of a pond that was reflecting the, the fence that surrounded it and the manicured grass all the way up to this, you know, million-dollar house with three-car garage. And again, they're just driving by, both of them just looking, and one of them said, sometimes the world looks pretty good, doesn't it? And it does. And Satan is so crafty. He can make materialism look really good. Man, I'd love to have a house like that. And they wind up doing anything and everything to get it. He can make raunchy jokes seem funny. When you loosen up a bit, people laugh and you're accepted and they, they, they kind of like you. He can make immorality look acceptable and sound exciting. Think about it. We don't call it infidelity or cheating. Not on the tempting side. We call it an affair or a lover or a mistress or even a one-night stand, or even extracurricular, all kinds of ways to kind of lessen the sting. He can make selfishness appear justified. All my life, I've sacrificed for others. I'm going to spend some on myself. I deserve it. And the devil can make gossip seem very appropriate. I want to share a prayer request, but I need you to keep it very confidential. And everybody's all ears. Everybody's looking at you. He can make doubt look very intelligent. Some people believe the Bible is literal, but I have a a more open mind, and I think there's other religions that may have some truth that we need to listen to. And people can be impressed with what they think is your open-mindedness. Satan appeals seductively, which brings me to the last point. He's crafty in that he argues selectively, and this may be where he is most successful Satan is devious in that he chooses what not to say. 
He knows the truth, but he's crafty in his manipulation. He did not warn Eve that the fruit will taste good, but if you eat it, you're going to be separated from God. You're going to have guilt. All kinds of things are going to happen. You're going to be cast out of the garden. You're going to have to work. You're going to have experience intense pain in childbirth. One of your children is going to murder your other child. And you as a mother are going to live knowing that. One day your body is going to wither and die. One author said Satan does not subscribe to the truth and advertising code. And he doesn't. He's cleverly selective. He specializes in half-truths. And Satan lies to Jesus. We're selective and, and not easy to combat. If you are the Son of God, you turn these stones into bread. And Jesus could have. And what was wrong with that? Where's the sin? Where's the harm in that? He was hungry. Remember, he'd been without food for 40 days. Very hungry. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you these kingdoms. They're mine to give. Partially true. He is a prince of the world, ruler of the world, as some translations say it. And he can deliver for a while. Cast yourself down from the temple. The angels would have saved him. He wouldn't have died. People would have been amazed at such a feat. But if Jesus had yielded to any one of these temptations for just a moment... He would have been guilty of disobedience to his father. He would no longer be that perfect sacrifice, able to give his life for all of us. So Jesus responded by quoting scripture. Man does not live by bread alone. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. You worship God only. See, he demonstrates what we know is true. You've got to be saturated with the word. You've got to know the word. It's got to be in you. We cannot reason with Satan on an intellectual level. He will win every time. He will outwit us. He's got the schemes. We need a God-given spirit of discernment to determine truth and falsehood. That's how we need to pray constantly. And we get that by making that commitment to God's Word, knowing the Word. Think about this. I didn't put it on the screen as far as a visual. I put a couple of verses. Go to the next slide. I want you to think of a continuum of 100% truth, say it's over here, that's, that's God. And the Bible says, Isaiah 65, 16, the God of truth, that is who he is, 100% true. God cannot lie. And the other end of the truth continuum is 0% truth, and that's the devil. As Jesus said, uh, John 8, 44, there is no truth in him. He is a liar. Okay? So you got that truth continuum. Think about that for a moment. The danger comes then with half-truths, or maybe we should say partial truths, because sometimes they're not even half. Because as you move down that that truth continuum, okay, say if it's a zero percent is over here, at what point do you believe? Do you believe at 10% true, or do you believe at 30% true, or what about if you get like 51, more true than false? Do you believe that? Or what do you think? Well, no, I'll wait till I'm at 75% true, and then I'll believe that. Or, or maybe 95% true. What about 99% true? Would you drink water that was 99% pure and 1% poison? I don't think so. Not knowingly. Because you know 
is not pure. There's poison in there. No, now think about this. Where on that continuum of 100% true to 0% true, do you think Satan is most effective with deceiving us, with, with manipulating us? I would say way over here, maybe the 75, 85, 90 plus range, where most of it sounds true, so it's easy to believe. I think that's where he masquerades as that angel of light. For example, Satan does not say, murder's good, murder's okay, just kill whoever you want. Nobody's going to believe that. Even if they don't believe in God, they're not going to believe that. You know, they would denounce that. They understand that. But if he says the fetus is not viable outside the womb, the mother's not married, she's 15 years old, nobody wants her, the baby might be malformed. Well, then it's a little more believable. Or if Satan says it's good to have sex with anyone at any age, at any time, even if you rape somebody, nobody's going to believe that. But if you get home late at night, you're overworked, overstressed, Satan says, why not get on the computer and just enjoy yourself there? Because there's lots there. Here's another one. God hates you. And he looks forward to sending you to hell. Nobody's going to believe that. Nobody. Well, what about these partial truths? You know God loves you, but you keep messing up. You're not doing enough for God. You need to try more. You need to believe more. In fact, you've messed up so much, I'm not sure if there's any hope for you. In fact, you've made such a mess of your life, I'm not even sure why you even think you can pray and God's going to hear you. Again, some truth, some lies, as if God's love is conditional on our perfection. See, once Satan gets us to agree with these partial truths, then he can lower and lower the truth scale. Because he's got in and he's working on us. He started with Eve. Did God really say? And then she ended up believing a lie. That she would be like God. A ridiculous lie. He does the same with us. We get sucked into this partial truth. And then believe in things that's not true at all. That's why 2 Corinthians 10, 5 is so important. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Because every thought ultimately has one of two sources. It's either of God or it's from the evil one. And we've got to decide. Consider a couple of his um, maybe most popular truths, I mean lies today, far from truth. How about this one? Well, somebody's got to win the lottery. Might as well be me. You ever heard that one? You ever said that one? Because what's not said in that, what's lacking there, is that a lot of people are going to lose. And they're going to lose big. Here's another one. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We talked about this before. But the idea where you can kind of lower your restraints... But there's some truth in that, isn't there? 
what you do in another city, another town, whatever, it might not get back to your parents or your spouse or your family or your job. It might stay there. But if you lose money, it does stay in Vegas all right. And you might bring home a lot of other things that you didn't intend to bring home. The Bible says, number 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Here's another partial truth. There's good in, there's some good in all religions. You know, all religions have some good in them, don't they? Some, they'll teach some moral standing, something that's good. But there's only one where the founder died atoning for your sins and came back to life and is in heaven preparing a place for you and doesn't have a code where you've got to obey everything perfectly to earn your way. But instead, in obedient faith, believing he's paid the way. So your life is a worship to him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What about this lie? You've got to follow your heart. You've got to follow your heart. We, we say this, we hear it all the time, and it sounds so good. And there's a lot of variations to this lie. You've just got to be true to yourself. Think about that. You've just got to be true to yourself. Or I'm just not feeling it. Or that's the way God made me. The truth is, your heart is corrupt. That's what the Bible says. You can't trust it. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Think about it. It's not about following your heart. If Jesus did what he wanted to do, he would have walked out of the garden and never made it to the cross. Right? Wasn't that his prayer? Is there any other way? He didn't, he didn't want it. He wasn't feeling it. It was not about the feeling at all. Instead, he prayed, Luke twenty two forty two, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross, and he sacrificed his life for all of us. That's why his word is truth. And that's why truth is so important. It's not just about believing the right thing. It's what is true? John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's why we give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus every time we gather in worship. And we're going to sing a song to encourage you. And even during that song, Satan may whisper all kinds of partial truths to you. And they're going to sound real. Some of them very real, very legitimate. But you know, making a decision to follow Jesus doesn't have to be some ecstatic, super emotional experience. Sometimes it can just be a rational matter of fact. He is God. It is true. And I believe it. And it's time for me to make a decision. God offers the truth. Satan offers lies. And here's the amazing thing in all of this to me. God lets you choose. Satan is so crafty 
in his manipulation. But that's not God. God will not manipulate you at all. He will send his son to die and his people to share his truth to you over and over and over again because they want you to be saved. Because just like them, they were lost and there's no way to get to heaven except through Jesus. And they want you to go there too. But you have to decide. You have to make the choice. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We're going to talk about that verse tonight in our small groups as well. But what about you? And what about now? This song is to encourage you to say yes to the one true God who sent his son to die for you. If you're ready to confess your faith in Jesus, let him make you a new creation as he gives you the Holy Spirit. As you come out of that watery grave of baptism, you are that new person who now belongs to him and no longer following the evil one. Once you come as we stand and sing to encourage.